friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. Hi there, listeners, and welcome to the Curious Reader Podcast. Before we get started today, we have an important announcement. I'm going to play a recording for you from Melissa at this moment. Hello, Stacy and Curious Reader Podcast listeners. This is Melissa Mannon, the former co-host of the Curious Reader Podcast. I unfortunately need to step away from my role with the Curious Reader because I have accepted a new position at the Kingston Community Library and I'm sitting in my new office right now, so the sound might not be so great. I'm so proud of the work that Stacy and I have done over the past year with this podcast, and I know that it will continue in good hands. I can't wait to hear future episodes that Stacy cooks up with a new co-host on The Curious Reader. Um, best of luck to you, Stacy. And um, goodbye to my Goffstown friends. I hope to see you around town. Melissa will be greatly missed, but I'm so excited for this new opportunity for her, and I know she will slay it. And the podcast will go on. Now, Melissa was the researcher extraordinaire and really had a talent for whittling down all the information she found so that it could fit in this podcast. I don't have that talent. But I will still break down a book into a quick summary, explore the hits and misses, and we will still explore things within the book that piqued a curiosity to find out more. But it's going to be more of like a, hey, these are some topics that could be explored beyond the book, and here's some of the quick research that was uncovered. Uh, and I will not be doing this alone, listeners. So let's give a big welcome to Liz Erickson. She's a colleague of mine at the Gosstown Public Library. Hey, Liz. I'm so happy you agreed to join me. Hi. I'm so happy to be part of your awesome podcast. Uh, like Stacy mentioned, I work here at the Gosstown Public Library, but my secret origin is that before I decided to work in the wonderful world of libraries, I was an editor at DC Comics, or as I like to say, I worked closely with Batman. <laughs> So I really like talking about books. Well, that's great because I like talking about books too. And so hopefully we won't go off into too many tangents and, you know, we'll, we'll hit what we need to hit. But um, I'm really excited to have you along. So let's get into what we're going to be discussing. At the end of December, I announced a different book. But given all the changes and then asking Liz to join me, we decided to um, pick something different. So today we will be discussing These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. Okay, so why don't we start then with a quick summary of, of what this book is about, right? So it's a historical uh, fantasy and it has romance, uh, but I'm going to tell you it's more heavy on the historical side and I think light on the romance and also it's supposed to have some fantasy to it and I would say light on the, on the fantasy too. I would also interject that this is very much a detective story. Yeah. So like the mystery and the detective work is 
sort of the main point of the plot. I yeah, like. there, there's a lot in here. So it's set in 1926 Shanghai, and there's supposed to also be some Shakespearean influence, like a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but we're going to get to that concept later. So here we are in 1926 Shanghai, and we have these two gangs. They are rival gangs, and they are pretty much running um, Shanghai at this time. We have the Scarlet Gang, and then we have the White Flower Gang. It's like a Russian mafia. And within this, we, these gangs, we have, um, these heirs that are supposed to be taking them over. We have Juliet on the Scarlet Gang and we have Roma in the White Flower Gang. And so there's a deep history between them. Something happened four years ago, but a betrayal ripped them apart. So what's going on right now, though, is all of a sudden there's this weird madness and monster. That's taking over and killing people in Shanghai. Well, forcing people to kill themselves. Yes, actually. Which is yeah. Even yeah, grosser. It's gruesome and it's violent and it's oh so awesome. But <laughs> so you know, they're they're ripping at their throats and no one can understand why. And so Juliet and Roma want to save their city. So they need to team up. They need to put that betrayal in you know, back of them and come together and figure out what is going on. But that's easier um, said than done, right? When you have rival gangs that, you know, you're tiptoeing around and people are like, why? Why is somebody from Scarlet Gang over in our territory? And, you know, so th- there's a, there is a lot there. And not to mention, um, Shanghai is is got so many other things going on like it's being fought over by all these factions and feuding gangs there's a rise of communism the nationalists plus other countries are setting up international settlements there's a french controlled area british controlled area japanese american i mean there's a lot going on in this book so i don't know are you interested in reading it what do you want to share about that list what what did we miss about the uh, summary of this book Ooh. um Let's say I would say, well, first of all, I mean, talking about the the setting, just the fact that it's like a transitional time yeah. uh, for Shanghai. And it's like, I personally, and we'll get more into this later, but like the 1920s, I think about, you know, the Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. I think about Prohibition, I think about the United States. So the 1920s in a totally different place. Yep. And also, so our character, Juliet. Um, she, the reason this book starts when it does is because Juliet is finally back in Shanghai. Like Juliet and Roma are finally back in the same place. And so Juliet's experiences, um, because she's been going to school in New York City, um, her experiences like outside of Shanghai really color her perception of like her city and what's going on now. Yeah. Yeah. She, so uh, we're going to kind of get into it a little bit, but Juliet, um, because of a betrayal, because of something that happened between these two gangs, she was shipped off to, um, America, um, four years or so prior. And so now, um, you know, she is made a resurgent in Shanghai and, um, you know, so that kind of guides who she is now, that that leaving, that going to America and coming back. And now remember, Roma has stayed here in Shanghai the whole time. So I think that, you know, his he probably hasn't changed as much as Juliet has in those four years. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. that's a very good point. Yeah, right. Because, you know, he's, he has stayed in his home area. And so um, so what we do is have as though is this this 
monster and this madness. And like we said, people are killing themselves and Juliet and Roma are trying to figure out what's going on. So as we go through the story, it's it's kind of funny because you're like, okay, you're, when is, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Let's just stop that. We're, we won't go there. <laughs> the The elevator rang and sent me so off um, off topic here because we are actually alone. We're in the library um, instead of GTV. So who's in the right? Elevator? So I was like, "What is going on?" There's a madness in the elevator. So so it totally distracted me for a moment. Though I'm thinking that maybe it's just its own little cycle through. So. <laughs> but I was like, "Oh my gosh, there's somebody in this building with us, and there's not supposed to be." So I got scared for a moment. Sorry about that. But also, to be fair, a lot of what makes this book so cool is like the different revelations and the different things we're learning both about what happened between Juliet and Roma five years ago. And of course, like the more we learn about this monster and the madness. So I feel like there's a lot of things that Stacey and I really want to say, but we also don't want to spoil anything for you. Right. Because Because, there is so much. Yeah. And like the mystery of both parts is really what like compels the story. And and through the story, too, um, like I said, Juliet and Roma have a history together, right? So there is supposed to – there's like this tension between the two of them throughout the story. So even though they're supposed to be working together, there's like this underlying, this brewing kind of um, – romantic tension and we're gonna we're gonna get to that that's where that romance part comes in um so we're gonna we're gonna hit on that because i think for me i wasn't i knew there was supposed to be this tension but i'm not sure i really felt it but but we're gonna get into those and the hits and misses which i think we'll move on to now so a hit for me liz was the prologue (laughs) it was riveting it was heart palpitating um you immediately open with this monster and coming up out of the water and you are just dying to turn the page to find out more like what is going on i could visually see you know um kind of like a smoky dark shanghai and this this thing coming up that's just gonna wreak havoc you don't know what kind yet um, just kind of looming over and ready to embark on scaring the wits out of these people. And I think what made it such an awesome introduction is that, so you have the monster and the madness, which mm-hmm. we you know keep talking about. But so first we, we see the reader is introduced to this monster, like mm-hmm. coming out of the river. And we're like, Ooh, that's scary. Yep. And then Everyone starts tearing out their own throats. You're like, where did this come from? We don't know how those things are connected yet. Right. And it is very unsettling. <laughs> it, was, it gets you right into the story. It was pretty great. So it, it, this is a graphic, um, it, a pretty graphic book. In terms it's, of violence. In, term, in terms of violence, exactly. So, you know, the tearing of throat. There's a lot of guns. There's a lot of um, shootouts and you know, knives and stabbing. Let's think gangs here, people, right? So so know that going into this story that if you're a little squeamish on those things or that's not for you, then... It's very bloody. It's very bloody. <laughs> yeah, so we want to put that out there. Um, and the setting. The setting was a huge hit for me. Um, curiosity was peaked right there. I love that this story 
took place in an area that honestly I did not know very much about, especially historically. Um, and this was a hit for you too, right, Liz? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of uh, got too excited and jumped the gun before and started talking about it. But um, <laughs> no, I think that's what, in terms of even just like reading what this book was about, that's what really got me. Because something I really love uh, in my own personal reading is I love... Um, especially historical fiction set in places and times that I know nothing about. I just think it's so interesting to find out like 1926 Shanghai or uh, I am now blanking on every book I've ever read. But that is something that really intrigues me, places and times that I know nothing about. And this one, as Stacey and I both already sort of hinted at, there is so much going on historically. And I... There's so much going on historically, and it inspired me to read both about before this era in Shanghai mm -hmm. and then again after this era in Shanghai and just how everything worked together. And it was, I mean, definitely interesting to see how all of these things interplayed with each other, all of these different factions, and even just to learn about how life in Shanghai at that time yeah. functioned, Yep, because it is very unusual. Like Stacy said, there are all these different like settlements, and I'll get a little bit more into the specifics of that later. I don't want to bore you too early. <laughs> There's um, no boredom, no boredom. But it's just it it was very interesting, both like how it functioned on a day to day basis and just like the historical context, and it grabbed me, and I was super right into it. Even down to like, I don't know, Stacy. I don't think you enjoyed this as much, but I really enjoyed like. Um, there's a lot of narration where Juliet's considering, because she's seeing the like the changing city, right? Mm -hmm. She's been away and she's seeing how it's changed since she's been gone. And so she's thinking about like, oh, these new buildings. And she's describing like the architecture and how the different architecture of the different settlements of the city is like all clashing with each other. Mm. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I, I think that. I've made it quite clear in many of these podcasts that I am not a description person. So, <laughs> so I think sometimes when a book goes on description wise, I'm like, all right, I get it. Let's let's move. I am definitely a I, you know, I, I move by the plot and I want a fast moving. I want it to go. And so um, but that still being said, um, I do love when there is that visual of what's going on. And so I think that that's a huge thing to bring up because Juliet, I think, really was struggling with um, what Shanghai used to be mm -hmm. and what it's going or could be becoming. And I think especially with, you know, her family, you have to understand also these gangs. I didn't say this before, but they're generational, right? And so that's why she possibly could become an heir in her, the Scarlet Gang. Her, her father is the... Um, is the kingpin, so to speak, right now. So generationally, you know, this the Scarlets have been running this city. And so it's not just the change of that, but it also could be a change of her family not running this city anymore either. So there's there's a lot going at play in her um in the dialogue of her mind that the narrator gets to uh Right. Say to us. With all of these like warring factions, mm -hmm. some of them that are completely le completely legitimate and then some of them that are completely criminal, yeah. like who will ultimately like win out in the direction of the city? Right. Is there a place for a totally criminal gang uh, to roll in a city that's got like, you know, all these international settlements? Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so that was so, super interesting. That was that. And, you know, we talked just a little bit. I know I'm going off on a tangent here. here. We talked <laughs> a little bit, um, or Liz did about knowing about 1920s, you know, thinking more like the great Gatsby and the, and, and, you know, the roaring twenties in the Americas. Um, it, it, the interesting thing with prohibition and that is that brought in also a whole bunch of organized crime, right? So like mobs and mafia in the Americas. And so when we're looking over at Shanghai, this is right after the opium wars. So we also again have, you know, that, um, um, the Chinese were getting hooked on opium and the government was trying to end that, right? That like too much opium, but that opened the, I think what they were, um, they had said that, you know, it was illegal to have opium. You couldn't have it. So of course now that's the, the under, um, back, you know, criminal activity of bringing opium in and still having its people hooked on it. So that makes sense that 1920s, this organized crime is also happening here. Right. Like it's, I mean, I, this is again, probably getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but like originally- <laughs> We seem to be doing that. Yeah, That's okay. That's going to happen a lot. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, so like alcohol in the US where it was legal mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was illegal, mm-hmm. it was sort of the same situation in China with opium right. where it was brought in legitimately- not for good purposes, right? Uh, by other countries, mostly the British, who wanted to like profit off of this, mm-hmm. um, and then and now it's become criminalized, and of course everyone still wants it, so now it's gone underground. Yeah, so it's a really similar situation. Similar situation. So that that was kind of a you know um, a neat thing to see. Not not that. The, op- the opium, but the, the, you know, the situation, the situation or <laughs> the domino effect of those types of things um, happening. So I thought that was really, really interesting. So what else, Liz? I see um, we talked a little bit about guns and violence yes. and daggers. And, and- I enjoy them. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So uh, as Stacy is insinuating, another hit for me was the action scenes. Yeah. There is a whole lot of action in this book. And when I say action, I mean like action movie action. Yeah. Like everything seems super cool. It's just so cool. And it's very cinematic. And you visualize it immediately. And they're doing like, I would say a sort of heightened reality where yeah. they are doing like gun tricks and like cool action moves that you would imagine seeing in a movie, but also in the back of your mind are like, okay, that's, that's not what's going to happen in real life, but that's fine because it seems awesome. Uh, so I really enjoyed that, especially Juliet. I mean, pretty much everyone in this book pulls a gun and a knife on another person at some point. But like Juliet is our main character. We're following her more than anyone else. And like she does so much cool crap. I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> she does. She does. <laughs> she did a lot of things that made me Google the science behind it to find out if that was even humanly possible. And it's not a spoiler if I tell you, technically, it was. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so throughout the story, there's not a time that she's not talking about what she's wearing and the, and the number of weapons that's packed <laughs> underneath her, right? Like, she describes her flapper dresses <laughs> and where all her yeah, guns, and where and all her knives guns and her and flapper knives. would be. <laughs> and I don't know. That's super cool. Um, and there's like one part where, um, you know, she realizes, her and Roma realize they're being 
followed and you know she takes out her compact to kind of oh, like yeah. get the angle and she sees oh my gosh the guy following us has a gun and you know so it becomes i will whip my coat here i will grab my gun here no one's gonna see this swing me around slow, you know yeah. like very matrix like like i don't know so the action is pretty cool um i really enjoyed that part as well and i think that our readers will enjoy that so here's where I think for one of my um, hits that that Liz might disagree with me a little bit. I thoroughly enjoyed Roma. <laughs> so there was a conversation Liz and I had and she was just like, okay, Roma. <laughs> I will let you make your case and then I will counter. Okay. So yes, he could be heir um, to running the white flowers, but he has a definitive stance on what he believes violence should be and when it should be used, okay? So he he sets a stand on when he thinks killing is warranted. Um, you know, so it maybe something's going on. Instead of killing the person, we just injure them by shooting out their kneecap, okay? Instead of, like, full-on right into the heart or head. Um, so, I don't know. If in charge, he wanted to change the tactics of um, his gang, his family's gang. So I like that he always wanted to be true to his principles. Um, he thinks through his actions and the ripple effect that they might cause. Now, sometimes he does need to do something ugly, but I don't think his intentions are necessarily ugly. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? You know, I... interesting. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, okay. I was, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I 100% agree with all of this. Oh, like, this okay. is all like factual and accurate. And I... <laughs> But <laughs> all right, that was a long that was a long butt there. <laughs> all my fault. Uh, so, Stacey, I didn't want to cut you off. That was our awkward pause. That's okay. what that was. That was an awkward pause. Uh, so, let me just say one more thing, and then Liz can can go ahead and and tell me why all those things are factual, but still, Rome is just not it. Correct. Um, yeah. Interestingly, I think it's this. turmoil that he feels when um that he has with Juliet because she used to feel the same way as him and but then she left for those four years and she has come back and he doesn't even recognize who she is and that's just sad I'm sad for him (laughs) it is sad and I am sad for him and he is definitely a sad boy (laughs) um but and okay I'll give you this if the book followed Roma more closely. Like, we see a lot more of Juliet's yes. interior life. True, true. Um, where we don't have as much uh, insight into Roma and mm-hmm. what he's thinking and, like, his past and his family. Yeah. So, if the book followed Roma more closely, I do agree that, like, he has all of the markers of being, like, an interesting and compassionate person. But, here's my point. He's very boring. <laughs> He doesn't do anything. Like, Juliet does all the doing. He doesn't really do much, at least not of his own free will. And he gets tricked a lot. Mm, I worry for him. I, I, okay. <laughs> I, he, he's supposed to be, like, the leader of this gang. But as Stacey said, uh, I am sad for him. and I want he gets to, tricked. <laughs> yes, I want to protect him because I don't think it's going to go well for him. Like that's how See, I that's feel my about soft Roma. spot. Like I would never be able to be a gang leader because I would probably get tricked a lot. I mean, I don't I mean, think I could you know. be a gang leader for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I probably couldn't but. actually kill anybody. I probably couldn't <laughs> shoot anything, and I'm not sure I could carry all those weapons and do any flips or any type of cool things like that. Um, but so I, I see what you're saying. So what I would say is that we need a book from Roma's perspective. That's what we need. 
And then we could see how truly cool and unboring he is. Maybe he is. I don't know. But none of it's in this book. <laughs> okay. All right. Liz has made her point. I get it. So we have some misses, though. Right. Um, for me, the storytelling was a little bit of a miss. And, and here's why. Um, it's written from a third person omniscient point of view. And what that means is that the reader has full knowledge of all the characters in all their situations, more so Juliet, because she really is the main protagonist in this. So we, we hear more from that. But even um, there are a, a couple of chapters in there that some of the um, secondary characters uh, play a part in, and it's mainly about them. Um, so in all situations, we know what's going on. And I think that left very few surprises, especially in the plot. And sometimes it ran flat. Yeah, definitely when it came to their motivations. Mm. And I think there could have been like a little bit more suspense in wondering what, you know, Juliet is really thinking, wondering what Roma is actually planning. Um, I think there could have been a little bit more suspense with those yeah. things if we didn't already know. And to your point about the secondary characters mm -hmm. and having chapters from their perspective, um, it was interesting. Like, they were interesting characters. But they didn't have much of a role in the story, like, active-wise. Like, they didn't... Yeah. Those characters didn't do much to move the plot forward. So I found myself wondering why we knew so much about their interior lives, mm -hmm. you know, when they don't have a more sort of active role to play in the action that's going on around them. Yeah. And, and some of that may be... Um, the this is a duology, so their um, book two is already out, um, and and I do think that some of these secondary characters, I flipping through that book, I think they get more play there, you know. So now I can see it, but but still, I'm not sure. Um, even with that being the case, that that maybe we needed that much of that little bit that we got in this book about them. I don't know. That's yeah, just my thought. I definitely got the sense um, because, you know, I haven't read the second book, mm -hmm. um, but I did definitely get the sense that there were things that might be explained more in the second yeah. book. Um, and for that reason, it felt like things were set up but not resolved in mm -hmm. this one. And I don't want to get too into it because Stacy knows how passionately I feel about this. <laughs> but I feel very much that even if you're writing a series, sort of each book has to stand on its own, mm -hmm. you know? So to introduce a plot line that goes nowhere in the first book and then tell me, oh, it will be resolved in the second book. No, no, yeah. thank you. I don't care yeah. for that. That's, you might have a different opinion, but that's mine. That's that's a miss for Liz right there. Yes. There's going to be a couple instances of that. Where yeah. It's like, I feel like this will get wrapped up later on, but... Yeah. And, and so then you have probably noticed the names here, right? Juliet and Roma. And, and we talked about a feuding family. These are feuding gangs, but they are a family, right? Um, and I did say there were some Shakespearean themes, a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. So this was actually a miss for me. I think um, it is my opinion that if you're picking this book up because you're looking for that romantic tragedy of star-crossed lovers, then you might feel slightly disappointed. Um, the marketing of this book, I thought, was heavy as a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. But I don't exactly personally see it in this book. Um, are there connections? Yes. You know, let's go character names. Like I just said, Roma and Juliet. Um, there's Benedict and Marshall. Now, so Benedict and Marshall are, are like Roma's right-hand um, friends there. One's a cousin. One's his best friend. You know, they represent uh, Benvolio and Mercutio from, you know, 
um, Romeo and Juliet. So, and then there's um, Tyler that stands in for Tybalt. That's Juliet's short-tempered cousin. So there's definitely some things there. There's settings like a masquerade ball party, the balcony scene. Um, but I have a hard time connecting Juliet and Roma as star-crossed lovers torn, torn apart by tragedy. I wanted more of what their relationship was like before Juliet was shipped off to America because as I was reading it, sometimes I was like, okay, so did we just stare at the stars? Like what, exactly <laughs> what type of relationship did you have? It, it, right. it wasn't fleshed out enough for me that I could feel that they, you know, really loved each other and mourned each other. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I think so that kind of ties into one of my misses mm -hmm. was that there is a lot in this book that we are told. Um, but we don't see it through actions. Mm -hmm. um, so especially with the previous relationship of Roma and Juliet. So we never see, we don't know the specifics of the yeah. previous relationship. We really don't. We know that they played cards together. They played cards together. Right. Yeah. And that's mostly all we know. But we're told over and over again that like, oh, five years ago, I loved him so much. Five years ago, I loved her so much. But we don't ever see any of that. And I mean, I was reading this like really hoping for like a flashback or like mm -hmm. some pivotal moment in that relationship, which would sort of inform their relationship now. Yeah. And I really didn't feel any of that. So the fact that so much in this book relied on them being, you know, like star crossed, mm -hmm. like that they love each other so desperately, they're willing to go to all of these violent ends. Yep. Um, really didn't come through because I didn't necessarily feel that relationship so much. Yeah. Um, and to sort of expand on your point about the Romeo and Juliet connections, I was kind of joking, except I'm kind of serious that I would describe this book as Romeo and Juliet five years later, because instead of killing themselves, they killed a lot of other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's the story of Romeo and Juliet if they live to become exes. Um, so which is not a bad That's thing. That's a great take. But it was very unexpected mm -hmm. based on like how this book was sold. Yeah. And and some people don't mind that, especially, you know, maybe um, if like you don't really remember Romeo and Juliet very yeah. much. Like if you read it a long, long time and you're going like, ah, I don't really remember very much except, you know, they both killed them, you know, <laughs> themselves at the end. Like Then this might not be. And some people don't mind a retelling that is completely different than or not even like the original. Yeah, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. The only thing is that it was marketed so heavily to me as Romeo and Juliet yeah. that it just sort of didn't live up to that expectation. But had I not had that expectation or had I had a clear-sighted pair of podcasters to warn me, uh, I Ooh, might have great had... great plug. <laughs> <laughs> I might have had like a better perception of that part of the story. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and so uh, I think those were my two misses. I, do you have another one? I do. So yeah, I wanted to talk about, or I talked about already sort of like the, the exposition, mm -hmm. the telling rather than showing. And then the other part of the book that rubbed me the wrong way, irritated me. Um, there's something about the structure of the book that like I personally felt was off. Okay. And this is, again, another situation of, like, if I read the first book and the second book as sort of one book, mm -hmm. this problem might not exist. Like, it, the second book might explain my problems with it, but mm -hmm. I don't 
know that yet because I haven't read the second one. But basically, um, my problem was with the, the way the story was structured. It didn't feel like it was structured as one book. It felt like it was struck because it, it ends on a to be continued. Right. Like, literally, the words to, to be, be continued. continued. Yep. Uh, and I'm one for, you know, unresolved endings. Totally fine. Um, but my main problem was that. So it introduces, as we talked about, that like immediately that awesome, awesome problem like their conflict is yes there is a creepy monster causing people to tear their own throats out and that's awesome but that remains the only conflict like the only danger to them is this madness this monster for the entirety of the book you know they're running around they're trying to find out more about this madness um for just the entirety of the whole story until mm -hmm. like the last 20 pages so my problem with that is that it sort of never evolves as a threat. Mm -hmm. Generally, in a story, you know, you evolve the conflict, right? It gets more and more dangerous. Like, there, there's this old quote, and it's so old that I do not remember where it comes from, because it's been written in a million different ways, uh, that basically goes, it describes how to write a story, right? And it basically, it's step one, you chase your character up a tree. Mm -hmm. Step two, you throw rocks at him. Step three, <laughs> you let him come down from the tree. And so basically what, what it's trying to say is that, like, you introduce a conflict, mm -hmm. right? And then you add more danger. So you add more danger. You add more stakes. You might add, like, a timeline. Like, oh, all of a sudden there's a new deadline to figure this out that we didn't know about. And sort of that's how you elevate your conflict. And so that never really happened. So it just kind of mm. stayed flat. Like, the danger to them was always the same. The consequences for them were always the same. And even though... So at one point... The madness, and this mm -hmm. is where we're going to spoilers. So I'm not yeah, gonna we're gonna, we have to be careful. This is hard in this conversation because um, I was actually starting to think about something like, well, could this actually be what the author may have perceived as a, a, a bringing the stakes up in the conflict? But I don't want to really tell you because I don't want to give away the story. <laughs> well, I think I know what you're talking about. And so basically the madness mm -hmm. affects a important character yes okay yes okay. that's exactly right. okay. we, we our brains are like in sync that's what i was thinking of and so i had high hopes for that mm -hmm. as being the thing that elevates yeah the danger but as soon as it affects that main character that character just gets like shunted to the side yeah and they don't like, have to worry about that right protected now, i guess so to speak like yeah. just put this over there right. and we'll get like, back to it like okay we did a really good job of putting pause on that back to what we were doing yeah um True. And so at, as an editor, what I would have suggested is maybe, you know, now that it's affected a main character, put like a deadline on it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, no, now someone we care about has, you know, been affected by the madness. And if you don't solve it in like X hours, then, you know, oh, this person will die. Uh, that would have made the ending like a lot more urgent. It would have moved a lot more quickly. And I feel like that's sort of what it was lacking. Yeah. And I am sorry for going so far down this rabbit hole. Um, sometimes <laughs> my brain clicks into editor mode and it's difficult to click it out. Well, I was going to say, I think that you probably bring a different perspective coming from where you worked before in looking at the book itself than, than say someone like me that's just like, hey, I just love reading and I'm going to read this even though it is way beyond my number of pages. And that's <laughs> happening to me a lot in this podcast. Um, you know, so I think there is that different perspective there that, you know, you see well, the different than I see. 
And I also try to be cognizant of like, so I came from working on comics, right? Mm -hmm. And in comics, you have 20 pages to tell your story. Yeah. Right. And so like action and moving things along is like just a really important, like pace is so important in a Mm -hmm. comic because you have 20 pages. And so sometimes I do have to take a step back and be like, no, it's okay that this is, you know, lingering. Mm -hmm. It's okay that we're just like hanging out in this world that's so great. Um, But for this book, because it turned out to be so action heavy and it turned out to be like so much of a detective story, which I wasn't expecting. I feel like the pace and the structure should have moved at a quicker, quicker pace. Well, so even though you might have some misses in a book, it does not ever mean that um, you can't get some other interesting curiosities peaked out of that book. And I think for us, we we had some different curiosities that came out of reading this. Um, and the first one that I came to Liz, you know, since we worked together, we would we would stop um, <laughs> during our workday and like, okay, so. Uh, where are you in the book? Okay, this. Right. And like, what do you think of this? And oh my so, god! Can we talk about Roma? Right? Can we talk about this? <laughs> uh, why do you think that? Um, but one of the things for me was uh, the the madness, and and so you see this right in the beginning. So I really don't think that it's too much of a spoiler at all to say that w- w- this monster um, spews out some critters, some bugs. Yeah, uh, and critters, critters like right? And so as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh, could critters really do this? Like, could something get in you that could cause you to want to kill yourself? Like, that was my huge curiosity right there. So I mentioned it to Liz, and Liz was like, I'm looking this up. Yeah. I'm looking this up. So tell me what well, you found. <laughs> so, all right, I would like to be clear that um, <laughs> when we say can get inside you and cause yes. you to harm yourself... Um, at least from my perspective, I was not talking about human beings. As far as I know, there is nothing that can yeah, I don't think do so. that specifically. No. Uh, I'm mostly talking about like bug on bug. Um, so no need to have nightmares over that. Unless you are like an ant or a ladybug or a wasp, okay. you're going to be fine. But All right. yes, uh, zombie bugs. I got so, Stacy mentioned this and I was immediately like, yes, zombie bugs. That's a thing. Uh, so I was looking more into it and yeah, it's absolutely a thing. And it's, again, very unsettling. Um, for example, ants get like way the short end of the stick. There are two different things that can cause an ant to die and to um, sort of act in a way that's contrary to its nature. So like, there's a fungus that can get inside an ant and slowly eat it from the inside out. And we'll keep it along, however, keep it alive, however, long enough to force it to climb to the top of a branch or blade of, blade of grass so that when it does finally die, the spores of the fungus will travel farther. Ah, Gross. Gross. But, but interesting, interesting in light of this story. And <laughs> there is a different thing, a parasite, that does weirdly the same thing, which is why I said poor, poor ants. Uh, a parasite will get inside the ant, again, eat it from the inside out, and keep it alive long enough to crawl to the top of a blade of grass or a stick. And, but that parasite's intention is to get this ant eaten by a larger predator. Okay. So that the parasite can jump from host to host, getting bigger mm. every time. So that's horrifying. Wow, that is horrifying. <laughs> I actually don't like ants, and now I know why. Like, it's they're not just, the ants' fault. I know it's not the ants' fault, but like... I don't, not, I don't know. Like, not that I'm going to eat an ant, but what if you ate an ant? Like, would you be the bigger host or would it die in you? 
I don't know. You know I'm sorry. I, you probably don't want to go that way. Up, but I'm just, I'm like, no, because like people do talk about like, oh, insects and ants are going to be like the next protein source. But now I'm like, can zombieism transfer yeah. to humans? Can, right. Uh, this sounds like a book that we need to write. I'm not eating um, ants ever. I'm yeah, sorry. No. Not into that. Um, there are other ones that I did not get into so much. But, I mean, there are a variety of animals that like, or animals, um, insects. We're still talking about insects. Yeah. Don't worry. Insects that lay their eggs inside another insect right. and then like eat it from the inside Ugh. out. Uh, there are other parasites that get inside, I believe it was some species of beetle that cause it to just stop moving. Like all its other like life sustaining oh. functions still work. Huh? Like it still breathes. It still, but like it can no longer move. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like that. I don't um, like any of that. I just, I say again for all our sanity, uh, I only found uh, instances of insect on insect. So. This madness was only with <laughs> insects. This madness. Oh, okay. Oh. So that was, that was my um, rather scary and gross curiosity. <laughs> but we had more. And um, Liz, why don't you take this one? This was, was one I think you've talked about it a little bit, but now you're going to expand on it. Yeah, I feel like parts of this have come up in like sort of every section that we've talked about yeah. so far. But again, like having to do with the setting of Shanghai in 1926, what was so interesting is the effects of colonialism and extraterritoriality, which is a word I learned <laughs> for this podcast. Um, so we mentioned several times that, so in this time in Shanghai, like the British, the Americans, the French, um, uh, the Japanese, uh, all had settlements sort of around Shanghai. But specifically, these were essentially not just settlements. Essentially, they were, and this is by Chinese law, they were small, like, outposts mm -hmm. of their own country. So in the uh, British section, for example... Um, uh, British laws apply, right? So mm -hmm. they are completely, even though they are in, like they are within Shanghai, they are completely separate from, uh, from the laws, from the daily life. They can do whatever they want. And the same goes for, in the book, they mentioned several times um, the specifically named, like, the French concession. Yeah. And it's the same deal. It's like French laws apply, the French government applies, like Chinese has no authority in there whatsoever. And it wasn't even just that. I think no. that there was um interesting part in the book that talked about in these um, settlements or the, you know, these areas that Chinese people were actually banned to even come, yes. like they couldn't even go into the um, place to eat, you know, right. I like was in, like, oh my gosh. In the British section, yeah. uh, like Chinese people were not allowed in the parks right. in the British section. Um, and you're because like, they could make whatever and yeah, it's like, do you, do you understand you're in China? Right. Um, but they did not. They forgot they yeah. were in China. So that, that just stood out to me. That was kind of um, like, whoa. Yeah. So that idea of having like a country within a country or I mean, really an unofficial country within a country mm -hmm. is called extraterritoriality. Um, and that's something that we see apply in, like, an embassy mm -hmm. is usually, like, another, like, enclave of its own country. Anyway, that's not important to this book. But, um, and so the way that that ties back into this book is, like we mentioned, um, sort of Juliet and Roma living in this world. But also, specifically, um, so even though we have all these different European factions setting up their own settlements, you know, Roma, Roma is Russian. His family immigrated from Russia. He's right. lived all his life in Shanghai. Yeah. But so the Russians in Shanghai 
were not part, like they did not have their own settlement yeah. because they didn't come with the backing of their government. They just came as immigrants. So, and uh, most were, were were coming as refugees, right? Like right. they were escaping yeah, they, what was going on in their own country at the time. So yes, they came with no real passports, mm-hmm. just like under the jurisdiction of the League of Nations, right? Um, and so, all of the people who lived, all of the Europeans who lived in these settlements, um, even in Greater Shanghai, they were not uh, under Chinese law at all. They were only under the law of their own governments. Right. But the Russians, like Roma, like his family, who have been there for generations, they are very much living in like sort of the regular part of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. They are subject to all of the you know laws of Shanghai. Um, so it's just really interesting sort of these random sort of differences in yeah. how, you know, people in that city are treated. And so I, you know, the book touched on it a bit and I was really interested by it. And I would love to know more, though, not necessarily in this book, but to read further on how these divisions affected, like, for example, a regular Chinese person living in Shanghai at that time. You know, someone who was, you know, maybe not the daughter heir of a gang, Um, just like a a regular person, Um, because I can't really imagine life like that. And so, yeah, I was very curious. Um, And to tie back into the story thematically, because, again, this is me. Clicking into editor mode once again. <laughs> um, so just the thought of like these foreign powers having so much power and having so much influence mm-hmm. over this city that they chose to have nothing to do with, right? Like they're not bound by its laws and yet they are exerting all of this influence right. over the actual government there. Now I'm thinking like, oh man, you have like our magical threat is like this monster mm-hmm. that, ha- that comes from somewhere else that we know does not come from Shanghai that has, you know, can assert power over you to make you act against your own interests. Is this an allegory that the author was going for? I don't know. But that's an interesting point that I would like to see expanded on in the second book. And, you know, in this book, too, um, there is an author's note at the end of the book, and we always love those. Um, There's more and more, I think, of that in YA, that lots of different author's notes at the end of, and, and especially when it is a, um, book that is written by um, an author that doesn't always um, isn't represented as much at the table. You know, in in this case, um, you know we have um, Chloe Gong. So that author's note talks about what was going on in Shanghai at that time, and I do think that that was a huge part of the storyline in here and what you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. she wanted people to know that. And I think it's worth mentioning that Chloe Gong herself is originally from Shanghai. Yeah. Her family is from Shanghai, even though she grew up in New Zealand and went to uh, college in the U.S. Yeah, correct. And for others, you know, since we're just talking about the author for a moment, too, that the amazing and wonderful thing as well about this is that um, she wrote this or began the concept of it at 18 and and actually is in college while she's writing it. So that's, you know, young author, just really, really, really um, amazing feat right there. Um, So as we're talking about this and Roma and Juliet's. Um, notice I put Roma first. I don't know why. I'm so sorry. Um, but <laughs> as we're talking about about this, I started thinking about real life gangs, right? You know, I yes, what was 
what was well, it? Awesome <laughs> from a story perspective, not right. awesome yeah, from like exactly. a moral perspective. I'm awesome sorry. in this story. <laughs> what I found was interesting was how Juliet kept talking about how the city and its people needed the Scarlet Gang, right? You know, that that um, it was important for the workers and, you know, the, the city to have the Scarlet Gang leading them and looking out for them. Um, it was like the symbiotic relationship between the merchants and the gang. And I, and that made me curious thinking about mafia and mobsters, organized crime in general. You know, was there a love ship with the cities that they controlled? Um, or was there thinking about anything more than money? Uh, you know, and I, I guess it, it was both of them. Um, as the curiosity got the better of me, I started looking up, um, Shanghai in the twenties and thirties. And the author also notes this that, um, though she used the Scarlet Gang and the White Flower Gang, that there was a real gang um, in Chi- um, Shanghai at this time called the Green Gang. Um, and so I thought that that was kind of interesting. I found just a little bit of information. Um, we are getting close here, so I'm going to go super, super fast. But um, by the um, – let me go here. La, 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 la. I found, lost my spot, but – Shanghai became a favorable place for criminal activity, as we um, talked about, and the Green Gang in particular, due to several factors, became the largest um, gang there. And the interesting thing for me in this was that the Green Gang was often hired by um, the nationalist party in China, in Shanghai. And so we have, I think it was a Q, I'm not going to say it right, the Kuomintang, Kuomintang might have been. It's in the book too. And then we had like the communism party that they were clashing with each other. And um, so the Kuomintang, which is the Nationalist Party, often hired the Green Gang to break up union meetings and labor strikes. And they were also involved in the Chinese Civil War. And so one of the leaders of the Green Gang was also involved in assassinations of rival politicians. and so they were deeply embedded in the politics. Right. Like and, it's, it's not just like, right. you know, black market goods or something. Exactly. Like you are literally running the city. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there's this, um, so I just thought that that was, was super, super interesting. Um, you can read more about it. It's a little bit complicated just because there, there's so many names and so much going on. Um, but that was something that was super interesting. And finally, our last um, curiosity for me was um, something called Larkspur and Lice and Monsters. And so let me talk to you about this. The novel refers to a character named Larkspur. See, Juliet finds a small envelope with a flower on it, and it has no return address. And she says, oh, a larkspur, recognizing the flower. So that is a flower. Um, And she immediately opens the envelope, knowing that this message, because of that little flower inside, must be from this mysterious character, this person called larkspur. So my wheels started turning. Why this name? Like, why this flower? Why are you talking about this? (laughs) Um... And I may be way off base here, but what I found was fascinating. First, the larkspur plant can be deadly. I think that's interesting, especially the connect, you know, being connected to the character in this book. Even more interesting, though, is the history connected to the plant. The plant is poisonous. It's used and was used in ancient Greece to control body lice. 
And as you find out a little bit about the insects in this book when you're reading it, you're going to be like, oh, oh. Yeah, we're really selling it. Are you yeah. into lice? Are you into, you like <laughs> are you into insects and brains <laughs> and lice and tearing out your own throat? Um, but it was it was used to control body lice um, by crushing the seeds. And Native Americans also used the flowers to create an insect repellent. So I think that that's kind of interesting as you read this story and figure out what um, this character Larkspur is denotes and even though the plant is toxic magical plant folklore notes that this flower is believed to have protective properties so that's kind of like a hypocritical like i am a deadly plant but i will also <laughs> ward away you know um Ooh, could that have deeper meaning in the right book? i don't know no i spoilers, think it could so, it. so it was a popular <laughs> ingredient used in protection spells when warriors went off to battle and the plant was believed to repel scorpions but also be an antidote to its to toxic sting and it would ward off thieves, ghosts, and evil spirits. And people in Transfo Transylvania hung dried-out lockspur in the stables, protecting the animals from witchcraft. So I don't know about me. I was just like, what a twist. A plant that is toxic and could be deadly, deadly but also used as an antidote, repellent of lice, protection of evil. What does this have to do in this book? I was just, yeah. That was my thing there, right there. So, and you know, I didn't like, I didn't cotton on to that you at did? all. Uh, <gasps> but I wish that I had because makes yeah, it a little bit more interesting, doesn't that it? That is clearly a meaningful choice yes. in having that character named Larkspur. Yeah, so pay that. attention to that when you're reading it, people. <laughs> all right. So, wow, we, I did not think that we were going to go this long, but we did. We obviously are a chatty bunch right here. I told Stacey I could talk. <laughs> <laughs> so well we also had that like you know whatever with the elevator there the that like threw elevator, me off sure. a little bit but so liz thank you so much for joining the curious reader podcast today and listeners i'm always grateful when you tune in and don't forget to review us on podbean or in your favorite podcast app because your reviews plus liking and subscribing help others discover this podcast so please click that heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading and discovering something new and I am so excited to say that Liz will be joining the Curious Reader podcast again next month. So before we sign off, Liz, why don't you entice us with next month's book? I would be absolutely delighted. Uh, next month, we'll be talking about the book All These Bodies by Ken Dare Blake. It's a mystery set in the summer of 1958 where a string of murders plagues the Midwest. The victims are found in their cars and their homes, even their beds, their bodies drained but with no blood anywhere. When the Carlson family is slaughtered in their Minnesota farmhouse and the case gets its first lead, 15-year-old Marie Catherine Hale is found at the scene. She is covered in blood from head to toe, and at first she's mistaken for a survivor, but not a drop of the blood is hers. Michael Jensen, son of the local sheriff, yearns to become a journalist and escape his small town. He never imagined that the biggest story in the country would fall into his lap, or that he would be pulled into the investigation, when Marie decides he is the only one she will confess to. As Marie recounts her version of the story, it falls to Michael to find the truth. What really happened that night the Carlsons were killed? And how did one girl wind up in the middle of all these bodies? Personally, I have no idea, <laughs> but I'll be reading the book to find out. And if your curiosity is piqued, check out the book and listen to next month's podcast where we'll be talking about All These Bodies by Ken Dare Blake. All right. Thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.